This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. Of course, as you know, these are the four bodhisattva vows, and we chant them every day, pretty much, sometimes twice a day. And each of these vows is really a a fluke, as in the arm of an anchor. And together they are the anchor, the, the, the mooring of our practice as Buddhists. So really, if you ever feel lost, if you feel confused, ambivalent, you're not sure, return to these vows. Because really all of practice is contained within them. Nokomura Roshi, who's a a contemporary teacher, says that originally these vows were uh, directly connected to the Four Noble Truths. And uh, there's a version that appeared in what's called the Bodhisattva Jewel Necklace Sutra. Um, It's a Chinese sutra, and I couldn't find when it originated. But it had to be before the 6th century, because the wording that we use for the vows um, is Qi's wording, and, this, and he was a 6th century teacher. And in this older version, the vows read as follows. I vow to enable people to be released from the truth of suffering. I vow to enable people to understand the truth of the origin of suffering. I vow to enable people to peacefully settle down in the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And I vow to enable people to enter the cessation of suffering, that is, nirvana. And so you can see how they are related, of course, to the Four Noble Truths, but also specifically how the Buddha spoke of these truths. The truth of suffering, the first noble truth, which is that life is suffering, needs to be understood, the Buddha said. The second, which is that the root of suffering is our thirst or a desire needs to be abandoned. The third, which is there is, it is possible to put an end to suffering. The cessation of suffering is to be realized. And the fourth, which is there is a path, the eightfold path um, is to be practiced. So it's not enough to know that suffering exists that it's rooted desire, that you can put an end to it, and and that there is a path. It's not enough to know this. Each of these truths has to be actively engaged, actively practiced. And so first we do have to see suffering for what it is. That is the first vow in I vow to help people. And I would say, in fact, I I vow to help beings, all beings, to be released from the truth of suffering. We need to abandon desire, 
And, and actually, in the wording, they're, they're slightly... It's not that the, that the truths themselves are, are um, interchanged, but in, uh, the way the Buddha spoke of them, the first one is to be understood, and the second one is to be released. And um, uh, in, in the wording that I, that I just read, and the first one is released, and the second one is understood. But really, they go together. And then we need to realize freedom. We, realize to, we need to realize that there's the possibility of such a thing, that there's a possibility of not suffering. And then that we have the path to settle down in the path. I like how that's worded. And then to enter cessation. And really, it all boils down to we suffer and we don't have to. We don't have to. That is what the Buddha saw. And all of his teaching was saying basically that we do suffer and we don't have to. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh's wording of the four vows is, is, is interesting. He says, however innumerable beings are, I vow to meet them with kindness and interest. However inexhaustible the states of suffering are, I vow to touch them with patience and love. However immeasurable the dharmas are, I vow to explore them deeply. However incomparable the mystery of interbeing, I vow to surrender to it freely. And these seem very doable, don't they? I mean, there's certainly much more than saving all sentient beings, putting an end to inexhaustible desires, mastering all the dharmas, and attaining the way which, by definition is unattainable. Meeting beings with kindness and with interest, I mean, it's something I can practice, it's something I can do. It's within my reach. I can at least try to touch my own suffering with patience and with kindness. And it's, it's hard, but I can do it. I can definitely explore the Dharma. I mean, master it, realize it, maybe not so much. But I can explore it, I can study it, course. And, you know, this, this business about being all one, I don't, I don't fully understand it, but, you know, if all these teachers have said that this is the way to freedom, then there must be something to it. So I am willing. I am willing to, if not surrender, at least step toward it. Consider it as a possibility. And because this wording is... Um, in one way, is less abstract. You know, you can sink your teeth into it. It does give you something concrete to, to practice, to work towards. On the other hand, the wording that we use conveys the utter immensity of these vows. And they are immense. And we shouldn't forget that. They are boundless and inexhaustible in themselves. And that's important. That was, that was one of my favorite moments when Dada Roshi would, would speak of these vows and their impossibility in, in one of his talks. You know, I remember so clearly he'd be wearing his light blue kimono and his gray kesa. And he would always wear his glasses right at the tip of his nose. So he's looking up at you, you know, over the glasses. And he's sitting on the high seat. And so he's leaning forward. And he had such a... Um, 
presence and this booming voice. Those of you who never met him, I mean, his voice was powerful. And he would go through these vows, and, you know, and, and he said, you know, sentient beings are numberless. I can't possibly, possibly save them all, and yet I vow to do it. And desires are, are inexhaustible. You can never, never put an end to them, and yet I vow to do it. And he would get more and more riled up as he would go along, and he would get louder and louder <laughs> until at the end he would burst into song. He would sing uh, uh, Man of La Mancha's Impossible Dream. <laughs> <laughs> so he would go into song, and it was great. And you'd be sitting there, and you'd be leaning forward in your seat, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. <laughs> And then, you know, if you, still, if you still didn't get it, then he would say, you know, hope, forget about it. Forget about it, he would say. This, this is impossible. This is impossible. So if you're hanging to any, any sense of hope, forget about it. There is no hope, he would say. And I've thought about it many, many times over the years. You know, he was really saying a bodhisattva doesn't need hope because a bodhisattva has vow. And the word vow you know, has, has several meanings. I mean, it's a, a solemn promise, a prayer, sacrifice. But I would add that it includes wisdom, aspiration, commitment, remembrance. Because when you've said you want to do something, at some point you'll hit a, a place where you won't want to, where it won't feel good. It won't feel like it's working. I mean, if you've practiced for any length of time, you've hit that spot, or you will. It's too much work. It's boring. And a vow helps you to remember why it is that you said you were going to do this to begin with. Why is it important to you? And a vow is binding in that it is made by you for you that aspect of you that actually does really want to wake up, that really wants to be free. And so it can be a cautious vow. See, that's the, that's the catch. It can be made from a safe, a limited place, the place that you're in now. It, it has to make you reach. And so it has to come from this uh, realization, really, of, of, of a place, of a state of being, of a way of life that maybe you can't even quite see yet, but you can sense. You can sense it. You can, you can sense that it's possible. And the fact that you are sitting here means that you do sense it in some way. So even when you think you've lost your way, you haven't. Because that, that same part of us that began questioning, that began searching, is the same part of us that knows what to do when we think we don't know what to do. And that is that part of us that is awake, that is a Buddha. And sometimes you just have to, you just have to get yourself out of your own way in order to let that manifest. Simple. So, but you see, what, what the important thing is that, that we're not wrong. You know, you're not wrong. You're not flawed. You don't need self-improvement. You don't need to change. You don't need to fix yourself in any way. You are, in fact, perfect and complete. 
You need to see it in order to manifest it. And you, know, you don't need to just believe it. You need to see it, truly realize it, so that then you can manifest it. Now, the origin of these vows, there's a, a sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it's about this big. It's over a thousand pages. And it is said to be the pinnacle of Mahayana thought. It's very difficult to understand. It's very, it's very metaphysical. It's mile-high lion thrones with Buddhas emanating light from every pore. And yet, the, the Bodhisattva ideal really came from this, from this sutra, 3rd century. And... Um, the last chapter, it's called Entry into Reality, and it's often seen as a, as a separate sutra in and of itself. And in it, Samantabhadra makes uh, ten vows, the ten vows of a bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva, is, as you know, is an enlightenment being, one who has vowed to wake up, in a sense, to postpone their own enlightenment in order to serve and to help others become enlightened. But that's even deceptive because it's not that you're not on the path or that you're, you know, like the line is here and you're just standing behind the line waiting for everybody else to go by. It is simultaneous. It's a recognition that you can't do it on your own, that in order to be free, all beings need to be free as well. And so really it's the, it's the, the beginning, the emergence of the bodhisattva ideal that then slowly developed over centuries of Buddhist teaching and thought. And Samantabhadra offers uh, this invocation. May I purify an ocean of realms. May I liberate an ocean of sentient beings. May I see an ocean of truths. And may I realize an ocean of wisdom. So again, you can see, you know, the, the this, as a precursor of, of these vows, these four bodhisattva vows. And they are an ocean that encompasses everyone and everything. And that really is the key. The Mahayana really is saying you can't do this alone. That's what's impossible, actually, to do this in isolation, to do it in a, in a bubble. And, you know, sometimes people are, are I've had um, several people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned that if, I, that if I really do this, that it does feel so vast, that if I really do this, that I'll just become more self-centered. You know, if I could, it, it feels so lofty. And I don't really think we need to, to worry too much about it, but I also find that life just kind of uh, puts you where you need to be. And I, I, something happened to me before coming that I, afterwards I realized oh, it was so perfect. I didn't think it was perfect at the time, but it was perfect in, in retrospect. And what happened was I was working on this talk before coming to the city. And I was at home, and, and I was very excited. And I was like, oh, I'm going to tell them about this, and I'm going to tell them about that, and it's, it's going to be great. And, uh, and I was also feeling kind of tired, and I had been feeling tired. And I was cranky about the fact that I'd been feeling tired and, and really kind of wrapped up. And really my mind was just filled in, in many different ways with me. And then 
I decided to cut my hair. <laughs> you should not do that when you're tired. <laughs> um, and I mean, suffice it to say, I considered very briefly, very briefly, to um, leave the Mohawk, but I didn't think my <laughs> teacher would appreciate it. <laughs> It's a moment of a moment of distraction, a moment that is just like, whoosh, oh yeah, here you are again. The the good thing is I had had my head shaved for so long that it wasn't quite as traumatic. <laughs> and you know, at the same time, other people say, well, I really came here to deal with my own suffering. You know, I don't really feel that called to save all sentient beings. I feel very, very um, compelled you know, to, to uh, alleviate my own suffering. But I don't know. You know. I don't know about saving all sentient beings. And I don't know, certainly I don't know about enlightenment. I don't even fully understand what that is. And really, in the beginning, this is how we all come into practice. You know, we're, we're thinking about ourselves, our confusion, our pain, and wanting to alleviate it. And that's, it's not a bad thing. I mean, this is how we all must enter. And it's really that dawning awareness of our suffering and our ignorance and our confusion that makes it even possible for us to, to look for a different way to live. So it is necessary, this step, but we can't stay there. Because at a certain point, your suffering does begin to abate. You know, it feels... Um, it just doesn't feel as dire. And, and on occasion, you know, we might look around and think, well, why do I need to practice? You know, things are pretty good. They're pretty okay. And you can be certain that students were asking exactly that same question 2,000 years ago. And it's exactly, you know, picking up on that thought that the Mahayana said, okay, but you can't be free until all beings are free. I remember the Buddha said upon his own enlightenment, you know, he touched the earth and he said, all beings, this great earth, and I have at once entered the way. So in one way, I mean, the Mahayana was born on that day. It just needed time and sun and nourishment to to germinate. But why would he say that? I mean, can't you realize emptiness, which is, as, as you know, Buddhism is, is built on the premise, rests, stands on the premise that the self is not what we think it is, that it is, in fact, empty. The thing is, is that this emptiness is not a void. It's that interbeing that Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of. It's, it's a complete interconnectedness, complete interdependence of all beings, all dharmas, all desires. That is what you realize when you realize it. And that is why you can't do it on your own. Take this ango, for example, those of us who are participating in our our, um, 90-day training intensive, and we're turning very deliberately towards the environmental crisis and making that part of our practice part of our awareness. And some of our students have said, and in our residence up at the monastery, but, you know, I came here to look at myself, 
didn't I? I mean, isn't that what Zen is about? Or why do we have, you know, the people of color meetings, the LGBTQ meetings, the Beyond Fear of Differences meetings, the Sangha Treasure meetings, all these meetings? And the answer really is in that Buddhist statement. We all together at once must enter the way, and we haven't. As Shugen Sensei was saying in his talk last week, there is so much and there's so many that we disregard, that we throw away, that we ignore, that we discard as unimportant. And so if you came here to look at yourself, you just, all of us need to know that we can't do that separate. I can't do that separate from you. I can do that separate from those parts of me that I don't like that are messy, that are unsavory, that are embarrassing. When we separate them, and when I separate from you, we have the world that we live in, a world of of conflict and alienation, more and more, perhaps. So, yes, these vows are impossible, and that is exactly why we must make them. To save the environment and this planet, impossible. To establish racial and gender and sexual and age equality, impossible. To put an end to poverty and hunger, impossible. And yet I vow to dedicate the rest of my life to doing it in small or large measure, knowing that they're unattainable, knowing that I'll never be done, that I'll never just switch off be able to just stop caring, stop paying attention. And if this sounds like bad news, like so much work, look closely at this switching on and off. This isn't that how most, most of us live. You know, we work, 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 and then we veg out, collapse. Work, 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 work again. And people say, you know, I don't know how to take practice into my life. That's why because we think they're separate. We think, here's practice, what I do on my cushion, here's the rest of my life. And if if I think that somehow what I'm doing here will automatically translate to what I'm doing here, it can't. It is impossible. It won't happen automatically, because your life and your practice are not two different things. It's not like we're just cupboards you know, with all these drawers and and shelves and cubbies, this ever-proliferating number of of cubbies where we just tuck things away and then rifle through when we need to find something. You know, we're we're whole, three-dimensional human beings that are inescapably connected to every other being and every other thing in this universe. So if we want to know how to bring practice into our lives, we have to embody it. I feel that strongly, and I've been speaking about it recently. I just feel that very strongly. We can't, you know, we live from here up. You know, we see our our bodies as transportation for our brains to get us to all those meetings. (laughs) And and this isn't just, you know, intellectual people, you know, like... uh, crazy scientists and 
eremitic writers and the adult mathematicians. I mean, it's all of us, really, and more and more, I think, you know, given our, our society and, and how most of us are choosing to live. We're just from here up. And so in my mind, in my brain, saving all sentient beings is separate from saving me. But they're not. Of course, again, we're not liberated until all beings are liberated. And we can't liberate ourselves or others without the practice of the paramitas, the virtues of enlightened being, the precepts, the moral and ethical teachings by leaving out kindness and uh, care, just care for one another. So we can't just stay in our room and hope that things will just sort themselves out. Although I, I did read a story of a, of a Tibetan teacher. He vowed, I believe, I believe he was in his 20s or 30s, and he made a vow to not ever again cross the threshold of his room, to remain where he was and have people come so that he could teach. He could continue to learn and practice and teach them the Dharma. And that's what he did for 60 years. He never once again left his room. So there's many ways to save all beings and to put an end to desires to reach the world. Can you imagine a vow like that? Somebody gave me a book about uh, consciousness, and towards the end they had a chapter on uploading this, this um, concept, this idea of that we will evolve to such an extent that we will, won't need our bodies. We will um, upload to a, a cloud, I guess, some kind of virtual reality, <laughs> and uh, we will live on uh, disembodied. And, you know, I'm not against technology, and I'm not against progress, but I find the idea of uh, searching for immortality, which presumably is our idea of of freedom, at least some of us, by becoming bodiless, I find that deeply disturbing and and counterintuitive, in fact. Human life is meant to be finite. All life is meant to end. That's not a a fault in the system. That is how the system is meant to work. It's what gives life its urgency and its its, uh, vitality, its importance. At the same time, that doesn't mean, well, I shouldn't care then about the planet or how I live. Our vow is to alleviate suffering. And, you know, if you, if you come here and you come here regularly, you're, you're making those vows. Every time we chant the four bodhisattva vows, as, as we're about to do in a few minutes, you're saying, yeah, I'm on board with this. This is how, how I want to live my life. And so our vow is to put an end to the suffering that's already arisen and to not give rise to more suffering in the time that we are here. And, and how are we going to do that without bodies? <laughs> I mean, 
maybe, I mean, certainly there won't be certain kinds of suffering, I, I guess. But it, it, I, find, I actually do find it quite upsetting. I mean, are, are children and women in Uganda going to be able to upload a farmer or a miner you know, in South Dakota? You know, erasing the body is not what we need. I, in fact, I think it's quite the contrary. We need to grapple with it. We need to feel its discomfort, its fragility, its sickness, its death, its finality. That's what gets us in our feet and moving, looking for a saner way to live. I was speaking to someone who had done her first uh, retreat at the monastery. And I just asked her how her zazen was, you know, the first morning. And she said, oh, it was, it was really hard. She said, my legs were really hurting. And she, she said, I, it was really bad. In fact, I felt like they were going to fall off. And I just nodded knowingly. I said, yeah, you know, when I did my first sashin, it was July when it was 95 degree weather. And I remember sitting in the, in, which actually I love, but it was still hot. It was very hot. And I was sitting in the Doksan line and in a lake of sweat. And I, you know, I, I run quite a bit, and so I was pretty tight, and so I was just in, in agony. And I'm, I'm dripping, and I'm in agony, and I'm thinking, when the hell is this going to be over? And my next thought was, when can I do the next one? It's very interesting. <laughs> and this woman, you know, she was in agony too, and she said to me, you know, I actually thought that the Jikiro had, she didn't know it was Jikiro, the timekeeper, she thought, I thought they'd fallen asleep. But the period certainly must be over by now. I mean, hasn't that happened to you? You're sitting there and you're thinking, come on, where is the Jikiro? I mean, certainly by now. And the monitor, I mean, they, have they fallen asleep? And you're just, you know, getting more and more excited. And you, everything that you can do to stifle just like, monitor, monitor time. <laughs> and they, we have to feel, you know, if you get discouraged that first time where is that, that agony, that pain, um, it's a shame because I think we need to all go through that, cross that line, you know, and to realize it's okay to be in pain. It's natural. It's human. And that you can do that, that it's okay, that it will pass like every single other thing passes. So do these vows make you stretch? Yeah. Yes, they do. They have to. They have to. I mean, it is simply not realistic for us to, to expect that we can be free by not changing anything about the way we use our minds, the way we live, the choices we make. Just as it's not realistic to expect that the environment will just fix itself without us changing anything, giving anything up. And if at times you're overwhelmed, know that you're not alone. I mean, every single person who decides to look at their mind feels that, who decides to actually turn towards life and not away from it, who decides to wake up and not go back to sleep, feels overwhelmed at some point. You know, the, um, uh, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, Kanon, we chanted her um, Dharani this morning, is the Bodhisattva of Compassion, the hearer, 
of the Christ of the world. And one of the images of Canaan is, um, has 11 heads stacked, one on top of the other, with the head of Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light, on top of the stack of heads. And the reason for that, the story is that Kuan Yin made a vow to hear, first of all, the suffering of all beings and to do anything and everything in her power to alleviate it. And the first time, you know, when she looked at the world, she was overwhelmed and her head exploded. And so this happened 10 times. And in the, at the 10th time, Amitabha decided to um, give her one more head and place himself, place his, his own being, his own head on top of hers just to uh, give her an extra support, if you will. And of course, you know, she, you could say she was a mythical being, but I can guarantee that the Buddha was overwhelmed, that he got tired, that he got cranky. I am sure. And that is why the Bodhisattva has vow. That is why the Bodhisattva must be undaunted and fearless. Meaning they're afraid and they take the next step. And so when, when we chant these vows, when you're chanting them, really feel what they're, what they're saying. And really ask yourself, you know, when there's a being in front of me, how can I save them? And, and have it not be abstract. You know, I, I want to, in subsequent talks, I want to talk about each of these vows because I feel there's so much here and there's so much possibility. But have them really not be abstract because in that immensity it can feel overwhelming. You know, when there's somebody in front of you, what is needed in that moment? Can it be just a word, a gesture, just listening? When you want to leave, when you want to go, when you want to shut down, can you just stay a moment longer? <clears throat> when you look at desire, how can you fully, um, or as much as you can, understand it, see it, so that you're not led around by it? Am I studying the teachings? Do I understand them? And when I don't, do I ask? Do I want to know? And what does it mean to attain the unattainable put away? What does it mean when I'm saying that? And please know that each of us, that we're not helpless. We're not just victims of the government, of corporations, you know, big money, authority figures, that each one of us is the agent of our own life. And that we, we have to, that we must exercise that agency if we're going to survive as a species. So, so we're not um, playing, you know, at being Buddhist. The practice isn't just practice until you get to the real thing. That is your life. It is your life. As I said, it's your life and it's my life. And as always, the question is, well, how? How do we live it? So here's another invocation. And this is uh, Shantideva. May I live endowed with strength 
in whatever posture I am. May my way of life be like that of Manjushri, the great Bodhisattva of wisdom, and this is my addition, and that of Kanon, the great Bodhisattva of compassion, who live to accomplish the benefit of every sentient being in every direction. For as long as space endures, for as long as the world lasts, may I live dispelling the miseries of the world. This is our work. This is our imperative, to dispel the miseries of the world, which include my miseries. Right? We're not leaving ourselves out of the picture. But they also include so much more than me and you. Just as these vows, the medicine for this world of conflict includes so much more. In fact, they include everything. They have to. They have to include everything. So don't let these vows be, be small. Let them be large. Let them be as large, as immeasurable as they really, as they really are. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.